0: Amen. He brought us out of darkness into glorious light. What a great truth. <clears throat> so we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from the fruits of the Spirit in our sermon, that is, not in our daily lives. Let's just be clear about that. Still keep bearing out fruit. We're going to talk about something else. Before we do, Uh, If you're new here, I just want to welcome you this morning and say that we're so glad that you're here and hope that you feel loved and welcomed as you worship with us this morning. So today we're going to look at this story that should be very familiar to you if you've grown up in the church like I did. And that's the story of the rich young ruler. And this is a story that's found in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And whenever we think of it, we might think of like greed versus generosity or finances and stuff like that. Uh, We might be reminded of some of the stories from the Bible, like uh, Achan, who hoarded for himself forbidden treasure, or like Gehazi, the servant of the prophet Elisha, who, who tried to get for himself wealth that his master had turned down, or like Ananias and Sapphira from the New Testament who lied about money that they claimed to give away, but actually kept for themselves. And so to be sure, there are definite themes of greed in this story. I'm not going to brush that aside by any means, but there is more going on in this story than what meets the eye. And I believe the Holy Spirit has a lot more to teach us as we dive into this text. So let's do just that. If you'll open your Bibles with me, To uh, Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at his account of the story. Verse 17 As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Lord, as we come together, would you guide us as we journey through your holy scriptures, these inspired words from your spirit. And may your spirit guide us and lead us as we gaze upon your truths, and may we hold them dearly, these truths that will not return as void. Please be with us as we engage ourselves with your words together this morning. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and insert ourselves into this scene here. So we've got Jesus. He's walking around town. It's in the daytime. There's a lot of people around, including his disciples. And then this young man starts running after him, trying to catch up to him because he really wants to talk to him. So let's just take a snapshot at this young man. Who is this young man? Well, if we put the three gospel accounts together, kind of like a puzzle, we find that he is rich, that he is young, and that he's a ruler of some kind. And as we just read, we can see that this guys he's a pretty big deal. He's rich, he's successful, he's like the ideal person who has it all together. You ever meet those people that they just seem to have it all together, and you're like, oh, I'm so jealous. And that's a sermon for another time. But you just, they just can do no wrong, it seems. This guy had the most perfect resume. I mean, you'd want him for a son-in-law or for an employee or something like that. This was the ideal picture of God's favor, or so was thought in the ancient world. I can just kind of see the disciples nudging each other and say, hey, look at that guy. Look, he's rich. He's successful. He's got the right image and vibe. And we could really use him. He could be maybe the 13th disciple for all we know. But like, just imagine the good that he can do with his influence and his money to back Jesus' ministry. Oh man, Jesus, don't turn him down. Just don't, don't get all weird on him. And what's really telling about this young man is that he's seen running to him. Now, people like this, they don't run. That's beneath them. He could easily send a servant out to go get Jesus. But he's so determined to have an encounter with Jesus that he actually risks his own reputation and starts running to him. Not even Nicodemus did that. He had to meet with Jesus in secret at night. And so one point for the rich young ruler so far. So it seems like he's off to a pretty good start. So then he catches up to Jesus and he bows down. And then he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then you might expect that Jesus would say something like, believe in me and you shall be saved. Kind of like what Paul said to the jailer in Philippi. But then he throws this really off the wall response. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I can just see the guy just going like, wait, what? It's like, where did this come from? It sounds weird and kind of rude. Why would he say something like this? Well, you see, some religions would try to tell you that, well, he's denying his divinity. He's saying he's not really God, or he's confessing his own sin. But all this is completely wrong. Rather, what he's doing is he's trying to get this young man to think about what is goodness? What is that really? Because he calls Jesus good teacher. Okay, I'm not going to argue with that. He's a good teacher. But then if you read Matthew's account of the same story, he calls himself good. He says it by saying, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And so you can see he's kind of equating himself and Jesus using the same terminology. He doesn't know what goodness is. It's kind of like, have you ever seen the princess bride? And uh, Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And it's like, this guy did not know what goodness was. He had no clue. And so then Jesus starts to directly address his question and starts to bring up the law. He says, you know, the commandments, He says, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal. You shall not give false testimony, not defraud, honor your father and mother. And what's interesting is this commandment, you should not defraud. Now, this is not one of the original Ten Commandments here. He's listing the social commandments here, you know, the ones about human relationships. And he adds this extra one, do not defraud. And interestingly enough, the gospel of Mark doesn't even mention the fact that this guy's young or that he's a ruler, but rather hones in on his wealth. And there's a lot of interpretations from the commentators about what he means by do not defraud. But we know that this guy was certainly in a position to be able to defraud people because this guy was rich. He had the means in which to do it. And so this further goes to underscore this man's wealth, because that plays a big, important part of the story. And I also think that he's trying to get a little bit more personal with this young man, kind of getting at the heart of who he is, doing a question or a commandment that's more directed straight at him. But initially, it just kind of flies over his head. He's like, oh yeah, I've kept all these. He says, I've kept all of this since my youth. I can just see him just checking them off one by one, bam, 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 oh yeah, I did all that, I'm on a roll here. It's like he thought nothing of it. You might as well ask me, hey Danny, if you want to win a prize, answer these three questions. Do you have any guitars? Check. Do you like coffee? Check. Do you have any flannel shirts? Check, check. And this, it was nothing to this guy, he's thought nothing of it. But then in Matthew's gospel, he adds this follow-up thing. He says, what do I still lack? And so this is good, right? All right. It shows that he knows that he doesn't have it all together. He knows something's missing. He's not perfect. He's still out there searching. So yeah, that seems good on the surface, but what it's doing is it's giving us a further glimpse into how he defines goodness. He defines it as if it's A step-by-step process, and he just needs one more piece, and then he's there. Like putting together a collection, get one more piece, and then he's got it. I was talking to a friend of mine last week, and he was describing how he had this goal of visiting all 50 states. And he told me he was going to take a trip in which he was going to actually get to check the last two states off his list. And this is how this guy is trying to go about eternal life. One more step, and I'm there. This guy is clearly way in over his head, and you can see that his definition of goodness is more and more starting to resemble the popular definition today. So goodness, if you're going to go up to some random person at the grocery store and say, hey, do you think you're a good person? They might say something like, well, I'm not perfect, but who is? Um, well, i I try to be nice. I'm a nice person. I round up to the next dollar to give to the homeless children at the grocery store at the the cashier. Um, I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. I get offended at all the right stuff on social media. So I think I'm doing pretty good. You might hear something like that. Or the popular critique of Christianity is, why would a loving God send good people to hell? And you see, there's a big problem in the use of the word good. The issue here is that we cannot come up with a unit of measurement that can contain the goodness of God. So if any of you know my wife, it's like, uh uh-oh, where is he going with that illustration? My life depends on where I go. But uh, if you know her, she's this kitchen geek, like... You name it, she's got it. She's got all these gadgets and appliances and knickknacks. She's like the James Bond of the kitchen or something. I think half the ladies in our church have instant pots because of her. But she's got this one thing in our kitchen. It's a small digital scale that's designed to weigh portions or ingredients. And let's say I have a cup of flour and a little pinch of salt. Of course, the flour is going to weigh much more than the salt, But let's say I run a semi-truck over this scale. Not only is the scale going to be incapable of registering that weight, but it's going to be crushed underneath in thousands of pieces, and it'll render anything that it's capable of measuring as one in the same. That's what it's like whenever we try to put our goodness up against the goodness of God. It just can't be done. And so Jesus sees his naivety. He's clueless, way in over his head. And he could do something like this. He could, like, challenge him and say, Okay, you think you kept the law? All right, well, let's go through it, shall we? No, you might not have murdered anyone, but have you been angry towards your brother? Then you are worthy of the same judgment. You might not have committed adultery, but have you looked at a woman with lust? Because you have committed adultery in your heart. And he could go by the law piece by piece and show him every single place where he has broken the law. You might pity him. In the South, we might say something like, oh, bless your heart. But he doesn't do that. He does something else. Mark tells us that he looked at him and loved him. Looked and loved. He saw into the very depths of his soul. He could see this. Enormous debt just hanging over this man, this guy who was used to being owed, rather to owing. This enormous astronomical debt that he could never begin to repay. And it says that he loved him. Man, that just hits me every time I read that. This man, he he uses this word for love that's not used anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. It's used like God so loved the world, or We love because he first loved us. But he uses this word. That means he saw into him and he had genuine affection and compassion for this man. He cared about his eternal destiny. It's as if he wanted to wrap his arms around him and say, I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid what you can lose, but I have an infinite amount that you can gain if you'll just come and follow me. Oh, what a loving God of mercy we have, even toward those he knows will turn him away. And so then comes the straw that breaks the camel's back, and more on camels later on. But he issues this challenge. He says, one thing you still lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. And you can just picture the look on this guy's face. Mark actually says the man's face fell. I mean, you can just see the light just going out of his eyes, the color being sucked out of his face, his jaw dropping, him being having the wind knocked out of him, because this was a shocking answer. And this guy was used to just getting whatever he want at the drop of a coin. I can just see him squirming there, And being like, oh, I just, I can't do this. And then he walks away. So what is Jesus doing here? What's he accomplishing? Why does he issue such an outrageous challenge or command? Has God really required of all of us that we empty out our bank accounts, that we give it all the way to the poor, and that we just go follow him like that? This part of the passage can often be misinterpreted. So it's important to know that riches are not inherently evil and poverty is not inherently virtuous. That's where we can go wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because there's plenty of examples of men and women who have been faithful followers of God throughout history, throughout the Bible, all the way up to today. So, the answer to that question is no. God has not required us to give all of our monetary possessions away. But before you breathe a sigh of relief, hear what Robert Gundry has to say in his commentary. He says that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Wow if that doesn't wake us up. So what's Jesus doing here? His aim here is twofold. First, he challenges his perception of goodness. We already looked at that. He's trying to define the terms here. And then the second thing he does is he reveals his lack of goodness. He shows him that, no, he did not fulfill the law. Through that Simple challenge. He shows the young man that he does not love his neighbor enough to bless them with his riches. So now he has broken the second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he shows him that he does not love God enough to forsake everything and follow him. And so he has broken the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength your mind. He has broken the whole law, and now he is left with nothing except for his greed and covetousness, which is his monster. The illusion is shattered. His true state is seen. I'm reminded of the Garden of Eden shortly after Adam and Eve had sinned. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they became the first human innovators or inventors, if you think about it. They fashioned for themselves clothing made out of fig leaves that in the long run would grow dry and crack or would be eaten by insects or simply tear through body movements. A covering that would not last. And ever since then, humanity has been fashioning for themselves fig leaf coverings of all kinds to try to hide the shame underneath. And so the man rejects Jesus. And this is interesting. Not so much that he rejects Jesus. This isn't the first or the last time that Jesus would be rejected, but rather it's that he walks away sad. You can just see him shoulder shrug, walking away sad. Why would he do that? Typically, if you reject Jesus, you'll walk away angry, huffing and puffing, but he doesn't dispute what Jesus says. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't even walk away apathetically, but he walks away sad. And the reason for this is that even though he found Jesus' Jesus offer attractive and appealing, he found the cost to be too great. It's like he was saying, Jesus has some good stuff here. I wouldn't mind having that for myself. But I love my stuff too much. And I think this is better. So, Jesus, I'm going to have to turn you down and hold on to my stuff. And so, as he leaves, it stings at him knowing what he's leaving behind. You see, the man came with everything you would think you should have. He came with courage, with sincerity. He was excited. He came with moral excellence. He even came with the posture of worship and reverence and respect. But he came with neither true desire nor love. Brothers and sisters, hear me. It is possible to desire the benefits of Jesus without desiring Jesus himself. We can love and defend Christian principles and ethics. We can enjoy being in Christian community. We can love singing worship songs and even devouring good, sound, solid theology. But it's all for nothing if Jesus is not our first love. We can be more in love with the idea of God than God himself. So remember the disciples are here and they're watching all this go down and these guys are dumbfounded. They're like, what just happened? And so Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them. And so hear what he says. It says he looked around and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. They're amazed. And then he reiterates it. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now I got to hang out on this illustration for a second, because this is one that has been butchered many times, by myself included. I remember reading this as a little kid and thinking it was talking about a camel putting his eye through a needle. I'm like, ouch, but that's not the correct interpretation. There's a popular one about this, this gate on the side of the wall in Jerusalem that was so small that if you took the load off a camel and just got him just kind of squat down, put his legs together, push, 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 and then you can get him through the other side like Winnie the Pooh in the honey tree or something. But these kinds of explanations take away with, from what Jesus is trying to say here. He's not saying that it's, it's really difficult but you got to try and try, and then it's possible. He's saying it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. In what universe can a camel just walk through the eye of a needle? It's ludicrous. Completely impossible. Jesus is saying, all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. He's saying, no one is righteous. No, not even one. As the prophet Isaiah said, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And the Hebrew word for this, Ida, literally translates to menstrual rags. Now, I know that that's a really repulsive image, but how much more repulsed should we be by our own sin by our own feeble attempts at righteousness without the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. It's like we can put all our good deeds, our resumes on the line, and God's like, I don't want that. That is filthy to me. So then comes a very good question from the disciples. They ask, who then can be saved? If not this guy, who seems like the ideal candidate and he's not in, then who is in? It? It's a very fair, very good question. And to answer that, first we need to backtrack, rewind a little bit. So before all three of the Gospels account of this story is the story about Jesus and the little children. If you remember, the children are coming up to Jesus to be blessed by him. The disciples are trying to rebuke him and shoo him away, but then Jesus, he becomes indignant and says, let the little children come to me. Now, why would Jesus become indignant? Hear what he has to say. He says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So he's not just becoming indignant because he loves the little children, and don't get me wrong, of course he does, He is indignant and know that this word is not even used whenever he's driving out the money changers. He is serious. He is indignant because this is a life and death situation. Eternity is at stake. You may not enter the kingdom unless you receive it like a child. Now, how do you do that? Well, kids are innocent, right? They're pure. They are honest. No, it's not because of what a child has but rather because of what they don't have. So my daughter just turned 10 this past month. I may or may not have shed a man tear over that, but uh, I just remember 10 years ago, whenever she was born, how little she was. I probably drove like five miles an hour on the way home from the hospital because I was afraid of, of breaking her precious little bones. And I remember holding her in my arms and she was just so little, so helpless. She was wrapped in those swaddle blankets I dare not let go or else it would not end well. But she was dependent, not on anything that she could claim as her own, but being in the arms of a loving guardian. And that's how we need to be. We need to drop the pretenses that we have created for ourselves because our good stuff is not good enough. We need to become like a little child and come to him and say, I confess that I have nothing. All these things, it's filthy. All I can bring you is the nothingness that I am. And all I can do is bow before you, submit myself to you, depend on you, and love you. This is the idea that Jesus is getting at whenever he tells us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is is the kingdom of heaven. That's the answer right there. And so Jesus responds to that question, who then can be saved? And then he says, with man, this is impossible. With riches, dreams, and aspirations, with good deeds, with careers, this is impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. With God, the most squeaky clean to the most repulsive sinner can both be saved. And so, if you keep reading on in the Gospel of Mark, in the same chapter, you'll find Jesus predicting his death for the third and final time. By this point, he has left behind his throne in heaven He has veiled his glory and splendor in human flesh. He has given his service to those around. And now he's about to give up his last thing, his very life upon the cross. Whenever God saw that Adam and Eve were clothed in garments that could not last, he put to death an innocent animal so that they could be a lasting covering for them physically. And in the same way, later on, Jesus saw that we could not save ourselves, or God saw that he could not save ourselves. And so he sent his only son to become the lamb who was slain for our transgressions, to be our permanent covering, to absorb his righteous wrath so that we could be spared what we deserve, but receive Treasure in heaven that we do not deserve. You see, unlike the rich young ruler, Jesus gave everything so that we would have infinitely more than what the young man had. You see, Jesus emptied himself so that we might be filled. He desired us so that we might desire him. He loved us so that we might love him. I love how David Platt puts it. He puts it really well. Let me read you this quote. He says Jesus was not calling the rich man away from treasure, but to treasure. The question for us is whether we will live for short term pleasures we cannot keep or long term treasures we cannot lose. Later on in the book of Philippians, Paul will lay out his own resume. And we can see that in many ways, he's very similar to the rich young ruler. He basically says that he was the ultimate Hebrew, the ultimate Pharisee. He was zealous. He was fallous, as he describes himself. He basically says that if he thought you were all that, I was better. But his response after meeting Jesus could not be more different. Hear what he says in Philippians 3, 7 through 10. the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Oh, that we would know Christ, that our heart's desire would be Christ alone. Now, there are three truths that we can take away from this. The first is that despite our greatest efforts, we will fall short. You might be like, I don't believe in in salvation by works. I don't believe that's how I get to heaven. Maybe not. But how often do we find ourselves relying on our own strength rather than in the power of the Holy Spirit? The second thing is that if Jesus is not your heart's desire, then you are walking away. Now, I'm not saying you can't have any possessions, you can't have your your families, your hobbies, all these things that you enjoy in life. Of course, God wants us to enjoy the blessings he's given us. But the error is whenever we allow these things to become Lord of our life. Whenever Jesus becomes one of many things that defines us, rather than the only thing that defines us in which we find our identity. He told us that no man can serve two masters. Either you'll love one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to one or despise the other. The third truth is that if you come to Jesus with nothing, he will give you everything. We cannot fathom the riches that Jesus has in store for us. Remember Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now I want to close with a story. You might have heard of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Google her if you're not familiar with her. But I got to see her speak at a conference years ago. And at one time, she was a 17-year-old girl. She was born in a family of athletes, a believing family. She loved to play sports, go horseback riding, swimming, and just had a promising future ahead of her. But then one fateful day, she took a dive into what she thought was deep water, but was not. And she became paralyzed, unable to to move her arms or her legs. And so then during her rehabilitation, she struggled, as you can imagine. She went through anger, through depression. She cried and cried out to God to be healed, but nothing. She even tried to go to so-called faith healers to try to be healed, but nothing. Finally, she remembered 1 Thessalonians 5:18, which says in all things give thanks. And so at first, she kind of begrudgingly started to try that. She's like, all right, I'll try to find the very few things out there that I can be thankful for in my situation. So at first the list was very sporadic, but then it started to grow and grow, and grow. And her perspective started to change. And then one one time she noticed and or realized that her paralysis was not the worst thing that she had ever been through, but that one time she was completely dead in her transgressions, but was brought to life by a loving Savior. And from that point on, She learned to depend on God like never before. I'll never forget what she said that day. She said, even though God took away my arms and my legs, he gave me himself. I want to ask you a few things this morning. You might be here and you might not be shaking your fist at God, but are you quietly walking away? Is Jesus the desire of your heart this morning? Are you ready to give everything that you have if he requires that of you to go follow him, if he calls you to something like that? Let me ask you this. If you lost what you love most in this world, will you still run to Jesus? I hope so. Because he is looking at you as he looked at the young man, and he loves you just the same. Oh, Lord God, teach us to desire you more than all these other things. May we not be like the rich young ruler who came with everything, but it was useless. But may we be like a little child who comes to you with complete dependency upon you. Lord, you resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. Lord, would you humble our hearts. Reveal to us that we are nothing in and of ourselves, but that you are everything. Lord, tear down the idols that compete for our attention. Lord, focus our attention on you, Lord. Help us to cut out anything that we need to cut out in our life, be it for a time, be it permanently, Lord. But Lord, would you teach us to desire you to consider everything else as loss for the sake of knowing you, God. Help us to know you, to desire you like nothing else. Amen.